I guess I have to break the silence. <laughs> that's my that's my role, <laughs> somewhat reluctantly, but it's a very different quality of evening than last night, as you can probably tell within yourself. Very different uh, sense of smoothness, or perhaps I mean, from from the outward obs- observation, it seems uh, less jagged. Uh, Probably inwardly, it may feel a little more settled than you were yesterday. It's amazing what being quiet does. And uh, it's a beautiful experience to see and feel, both inwardly and outwardly. Um, I want to uh, examine tonight, uh, the title of the talk is uh, The Restless Restless Body Worried Mind. Uh, I think... Sometimes we gloss over the hindrances uh, to the extent where we sort of know them in their generic expression. And uh, we are ready to say, oh, that's desire, that's aversion, that's this, that's that. And then from that naming, uh, there can be a sense of knowing it. And may I say that these hindrances could take your entire lifetime to fully know. To move into one of them and to really look at what's inside there. Where, how is it compelling us to move? And as Christina mentioned this morning, how they cross over and blur, feeding one upon the other, is extraordinarily interesting to see. Just an example since it's a very common one, many of us have doubt, and often that takes the expression of self-doubt. And because we have seen what doubt can do to our practice, when doubt arises, there can be aversion to the doubting. And so then a secondary hindrance can come in. And then in order to protect ourselves from the doubt, we can get sleepy, dullness of mind, so that we won't fully have to own what the doubt is saying or the implications of the doubt about what and who I am. And so as we begin to see these things feed each other, we have a renewed sense of interest within them, hopefully, and want to explore these things in their full and depth and richness. And I'm going to take the one tonight that uh, has been a component part of my own practice. Sleepiness was not, has not been a dramatically, a dramatic hindrance in my practice, but restlessness has. And I really see those two as on the same continuum. One, sleepiness is the waning of energy and dullness and that sense of, uh, I'm just, I don't know if I can bring my attention back. Clearly the moment isn't worth observing because it's dull. And so we, uh, label the moment, we identify the moment through the hindrance we happen to be having. And then the other end of the scale, of course, is the restlessness of spirit, that agitation that still the moment isn't worth observing. Basically, we're saying anywhere but here in any of the hindrances. But these two are so clearly, uh, you know, this is just, this isn't working. I need to get out of here. Essentially, that sense of uh, 
inward agitation expresses itself. Anywhere but here. It's interesting that statement, anywhere but here, because the Dharma is only here. And how often we give ourselves over to the message of the hindrance rather than to the orientation of the Dharma. Only here. Now, how can we possibly reconcile those two statements? Anywhere but here and only here. You can't do it from identification with the person who is going through it because the person doesn't have the patience in restlessness to attend to the here and now. So it requires a different level of stillness that allows the hindrance to rise without distortion, but is no longer identified within the pattern of what the story says within restlessness. And once we are free of the story associated with the restlessness or with the hindrance, we are free to observe it from here. And so we have to find our way through where the hindrances are telling us in our story, and each of them have a compelling issue, which is the reason that they are called hindrances, and listen to them from a steadier standpoint so that we can get some footing and not just buy in to their message so that we can actualize the statement of here and now reference, the reference of here and now, rather than where the hindrance is telling us to flee, because every one of the hindrances is telling us to flee. And when we are associated too strongly with the story of that hindrance, there's a struggle involved. Now, I want to say that the persona of struggle has a view associated with it a life view, because most of us have lived our life within struggle. And it has a rationale, it has a strategy, it has a nobility, it has a whole, um, it's like a stage presentation. You know, it's got a producer and a director, and it's very well acted. And it's quite amazing, actually, how truthful we find the messages of struggle. And it has a logic that is very compelling. And the logic doesn't allow us out of the dimension of struggle. It keeps us within struggle. The logic from struggle keeps us within struggle. There is also a logic, which I'm increasingly um, enjoying a logic of dharma, which doesn't follow the rational mind's logic that is within the struggle, but it has a different kind of logic. And tonight, perhaps I can show pieces of that. But the, the sense of struggle justifies our life. We feel that we should struggle, that that's sort of the ethos of this culture, isn't it? sort of self-reliant, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And there is a, a feeling of nobility within being able to get over a problem or surmount the difficulties of one's life. 
In fact, we can often get lost in the details of that as we relate our life to others, how this has happened and that has happened and the crises thereof and the dramas. But Dharma is asking us for the absence of struggle. Now, if we have invested our lives in struggle and the meaning and worth that struggle gives our life, then we can be reluctant to give that struggle up. Even though it hurts to struggle, it has defined who we are. Yes, I've done this and I've overcome that and I had this mother who did that to me, but here I am. And and it's very interesting how compelling that story can be because it feels as if it has defined us in such a way that if we gave it up, we would be missing something very important in our identity. And so, even in the quieter points of while we're sitting and meditating, there can be times of non-struggle, times in which thought isn't inducing a particular resistance to life when thoughts are just being seen for what they are. An emotion is an emotion, a thought is a thought. No particular struggle going on. And then, which has been related through interviews, a sense of terror. Who am I in this particular orientation to life that doesn't have struggle? Who, who am I? Who, how can I define myself? How can I look at myself in this new light, this new way? If we get too lost in the fear of the loss of our identity, we won't see what we're gaining in the absence of struggle. We'll put our weight on the diminishment of what we're missing and not see, not be willing to observe the benefit of what we are getting from non-struggle. If you just look out in those moments of quietude, if we're just willing to be quiet within those moments of quietude, not to miss ourselves too much. We can always bring ourselves back. Believe me, at the refrigerator door, you're very much intact. (laughs) To look out, to feel. The wholeness, the completion of life It's so interesting because each of the hindrances hold a particular depletion of spirit within them. For doubt holds the sense of lacking, of being inadequate, right? Desire holds a sense of incompletion. And so on. And from this new non-struggle position, we are complete in all aspects. We are completely adequate and completely complete. There's no sense of diminishment. And if we're just willing to participate, to stay a little while, to look around, to feel the value 
rather than just the sense of missing something called me, you'll also see, we'll also see that our heart, our heart is exposed, that it cares, that it's available in ways that it never could have been hiding within the spirit of my struggle, the nobility of my struggle. And my life is no longer contained and defined in such a limited way. Suddenly there is this enormous space that we have been talking about in terms of the instruction that is a given, that is intrinsic to the dimension of strugglelessness. And we begin, if we spend enough time within that dimension of quiet to fully appreciate, to fully appreciate the teaching of the Buddha, the pointing of the Buddha, a life of stillness, a life of quietude. And I don't mean the absence of verbal expression or communication. I mean the absence of struggle within that communication. So what is the thought within restlessness? Well, one of the thoughts is this should not be happening. It's also the thought within aversion and some of the other hindrances, but this thought, this shouldn't be happening. It's an interesting thought. It's a thought that we need to question immediately because it has no logic, it has no spiritual logic. Now let me show you where this spiritual logic moves differently than the logic of struggle. The logic of struggle says, yes, there's nothing happening here, I'm restless, I should go out and run or do something. That's the logic of, of the dimension of me, of the dimension of struggle. But spiritual logic, when I say nothing is happening, this should not be happening, makes no sense whatsoever. Because, why doesn't it make sense? Because it is happening. <laughs> to say, for the mind to say, this should not be happening, is nonsensical. Completely nonsensical, really. If we could argue our way out of struggle, that would be great, but we can't. And so to say this shouldn't be happening actually adds more struggle to the struggle we're having in dealing with the moment of restlessness. So it complicates the problem. And therefore, spiritually, you begin to see that you have to shut up during that time. You have to, we have to just be quiet during that time. To resolve the problem doesn't require expressing or a counter productive sentence or thought. And as soon as we believe in that thought, this should not be happening, we'll have the accompanying emotion that shows that, in fact, this should not be happening. And the accompanying story within that emotion that pulls up all the ways that it has happened in the past to my disadvantage. As soon as that thought is believed, the story is believed. And we'll have the accompanying emotional life and volatility associated with something that should not be happening. 
Now, worry, the worried mind, the troubled mind, the fretting mind, is a very interesting aspect of this should not be happening. I like this anonymous quote. It says, worry is like a wooden rocking horse. It will give you a lot of movement and something to do, but it won't get you anywhere. There, uh, and when I worked in hospice care for a number of years, there was a phase of dying, especially for the people who were very resistant to the fact of dying, often the young, that as they were dying and getting closer to that, they would go into what was close to or, or a semi-comatose state. And then you would see that uh, they, would, they would be what we would call terminal restless. They would start rocking. They would get up, out of, wake themselves up out of the coma, coma or semi-comatose state and sometimes try to get out of bed. They would try to grasp. They would find themselves and, and it would appear as if they were in some sort of anxiety state. And the nurses would often come back to the office and say, you know, we, we need to medicate this person. Just snow them out so that they won't have to feel this. And I would say, well, you know, that's, a pos that's one approach. But there another approach is that their mind is restless because they are coming up against the confirmation of something they have denied, that they are dying. And even if it is at the end of their life, they are still irreversibly seeing the fact that they are dying. And the restlessness is the reaction. This should not be happening reaction. That they can learn through, even at that late stage of their dying, and perhaps resolve a very important struggle within their life. So, I mean, sometimes we would medicate, sometimes we wouldn't. But the point is, is that I don't think there's ever a time in which as long as we live, that we don't have this potentiality of either learning or struggling within what we're learning. And to be careful about taking away the possibilities of learning, even if it's late within one's life. Now, rest worried, the worried mind, the agitated mind, and the restless body are in complete synchronicity. The body is expressing perfectly what the mind is going through, isn't it? It's, it's showing itself perfectly. Now, there are two aspects of this restless body and worried mind that I'd just like to um, speak a little bit about. The first aspect is when real, what, what, uh, of restlessness and worry is when reality is lacking Something in reality feels as if it's lacking, so we're moving, we're going to be moving on. It's like sort of that, that slight wonderlust feeling, like nothing in particular is going on here. So I'm getting kind of restless, and now it's time to move on. It's time to go to another location. And I just want to ask, because I think this is a common pattern in many of its um, permutations, that we can be so uh, conditioned towards entertainment, towards a certain intensity, towards a certain uh, busyness, that when there's a lull in that, we don't know what to do. So what we do is we move on. We move on to a new relationship, perhaps to a new job, perhaps anywhere but here. Anywhere but here. 
And that restlessness has such a compelling uh, voice behind it that we don't really look at the restlessness. We just give ourselves over to the message and move on. Move to the next thing. Move on. And it's an unconscious avoidance. Let me say that the whole of the Dharma, I've, this is a new way I'm framing the Dharma because I think it's so simple to hear it and understandable in terms of what to do in relationship to the way it's phrased, is that we are making the unconscious conscious. That's all we're doing. And we have to make the whole of the unconscious conscious, or there is no freedom. Even if there is one state of mind that we refuse to look at, that will govern unconsciously our life. So to make the whole of consciousness conscious. And so what do we do to make the unconscious conscious is to bring awareness to that. Awareness being the conscious attribute. It doesn't mean, though, that there isn't resistance to making the unconscious conscious. There quite likely will be resistance because we are afraid, and that's the reason it is unconscious, we are afraid of what it says about us. So we keep the unconscious conscious deliberately. And in spiritual work, we do just the opposite. Where there is resistance, we move towards the resistance because that's where we are sort of digging in our heels, trying to keep ourselves from being conscious. And so it's kind of pitting ourselves against our conditioning in some ways. So in restlessness, when we are, see ourselves within these patterns, these repetitious patterns over and over again, our life just goes in and out, in and out of them, the sincere student will turn towards them. Say, enough, enough of this. It's not going to turn towards itself. It's not going to cure itself. We have to be willing. We have to set the intentionality for that to occur. It requires our willingness, our willingness and our intention to go there. And many of us have rather feeble intentions because we're not sure whether we just want to continue within the dimension of struggle allowing ourselves to feel very noble within that struggle, or whether we really want to intend to end the struggle by making that struggle conscious. That is what we're doing here on the cushion. And from that point of view, that sort of dullness of mind, that that anywhere but here, that reality is lacking, let me move on, that sense of restlessness of nothing particularly interesting is happening here, let's go to the next thing. That's very similar to the dull mind. The dull mind sees, instead of being restless within the absence of entertainment, it's dull within the absence of entertainment. And therefore it says, well, it's dull, therefore it's not looking at, it's not worth looking at, I will move on. It's very similar. Either way, we have to be willing to go into what is defining the moment. The dullness is defining the moment in one case. 
the restlessness is defining the moment in another. And to go in, meaning to not let that set a definition of what the moment is about, but go into the very experience of what dullness feels like to our mind and body, what restlessness feels like to our mind and body. The second quality of restlessness and worry that I would like to speak about briefly is that um, the need, it contains especially worry, the need to think ahead for security. That way that we frame our life so that uh, now is not really what life is about. It's securing a safe passage in the future so that the nows will all be lined up in the way I so wish them to be. However, every now we get to, there's a new future moment that we have to pave our way through as well. So we never quite catch up with ourselves. We're always lagging to our need to improve upon what the future might be. I would like to say there's a root issue behind each of these hindrances, a root issue that I have found to be very important for us to acknowledge. The root issue around restlessness says something like this, and it can have various themes, but it's like, nobody was there for me in childhood. It is all up to me. Someone who has had that form or expression of childhood quite likely is very restless and very worried. Because when it's all up to us, then it's all on our shoulders. And the theme of sort of taking on the world and protecting myself from it is that theme of finding my security in the future. Now, let us look at just briefly some of the other themes of the hindrances. Like the theme of desire is that I'm incomplete. That's the root issue that leads to desire, is the assumption I'm incomplete. So if we've had a very deprived childhood, or whatever, then desire may well be a very strong factor within our mind. A desire of doubt, self-doubt in particular, is I'm not sufficient. And if we've had the lessons from our childhood that have intoned the sense of insufficiency or inadequately, inadequacy, then quite likely that'll be the root issue that leads to an ongoing expression of, doubt, of doubt. So what do we do with these root issues? It's very important that we don't circumvent these issues and just try to get to the dharma of it all. We would love to bypass the difficult psychological issues of our life and head straight to the dharma of emptiness. And many of us successfully navigate or bypass our issues for long periods of time, sadly. Sadly, we can do that on the cushion. The cushion does not bring forth the intentionality. It doesn't bring forth the experience necessarily of what we are aversive to. We can hide very successfully within our meditation for long, 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 or forever 
periods of time. So these root issues, must, we must get a sense of the patterns that are driving our life. And most of us in day two have seen those patterns cross over in front of us time and time again in the food line, in our meditation, in our comparisons and judgments throughout the days, the two days that we have been here. But are we picking them up as psychological orientations to other people, to life, to tasks in general? Or are we unwilling to look at these things? Because these things, when they are expressed unconsciously, seed most of the actions or many of the actions in our life. So if we're sincere, we can start looking at these things. What is this thing? All right, so I did have a childhood in which it was all up to me. I didn't have responsible parents. They weren't there for me. Whatever whatever the storyline is, still it's left this sense of worry, of needless worry and restlessness of the situation that I'm in. So what do I do? How do I work with that? Because we need to be able to have some way to move through that, to resolve it. You see, it's very, I mean, I don't know enough about therapy, to be honest, to give you the advantages of it. But one of the advantages, it seems to me, is that much of these issues, many of these issues were um, invested through other people's reactions to you. And it could possibly be helpful to have a person, a therapist, in this case, hopefully non-judgmental therapist, be present to show you that a different relationship, from a different relationship, from a different mind, that those, those conclusions, when they do come out, were instilled by a mind that was off balance and distorted, called mom and dad. Now, but that's not the end of it, you see. We don't, we don't settle for just a accepting sense of self. Metta can help, lots of different things. Unless we have a self that we are um, in agreement with or in um, appreciation of. We don't have to love it. It doesn't have to be, you know, just appreciation for this expression of me. We're never going to question anything about what that self is if we're in aversion to it. And the whole of the Dharma is questioning what that sense of self is. So to so much of Dharma is just getting ourselves oriented sufficiently so that we can appreciate ourselves rather than to dislike ourselves with such intensity. And once that orientation through observation, through making ourselves conscious, through just the willingness to look and to see that those things are conditioned references to the past or nothing that is essentially us on an ongoing basis. The beauty of that is that in the here and now, as we are aware, in the moment of awareness, we can see the conditioning influences coming through the past into the present. And when we are alert and attentive enough, we see those influences and we do not have to buy into them. They go over the waterfall. They come out and go right over the cliff. 
And there at the mouth of the cave, at the mouth of the cliff, we know a true potential that our conditioning will never allow us to see. And from there, we can absolutely know the untruth of our history. Not from talk therapy, not from going over the themes of my life. All we will successfully do in that is to take off some of the charge or to blame it successfully on my mother who did this and that to me. But to see its emptiness, to see its absolute vacuity, you stand at the mouth of that cave and open awareness where it, can, it has nothing to grip any longer. It, cannot, it can, this has no traction to gain a foothold into a new story. And it dies within that expanse. That's why people come to me all the time and they don't want to tell me their story because they think I will feel what they feel about themselves, that they are as terrible of a person that they, th that they think. And I just can't wait for their story to come out because I don't believe a word of it. Not a word. If I did, I would be useless. And so within, perhaps I can bring forth their attention and together we can meet in, a, in attention so that they won't believe it either. And that's the value. And we can do that ourselves. We don't need to meet with someone else to be able to do that. We can do that ourselves. Now let's look at some of the assumptions associated with worry. Worry is a very interesting, it's very interesting. When you get interested, you see, it, First of all, why would you be interested in something that implicates you? Well, you won't be as long as it implicates you. But as soon as you see that it doesn't implicate you, you get very interested in it. That's how it works. Interest is proportional or inversely proportional to our identification with it. So when you get interested, it's a good sign. It means that the burden is off of you having to prove yourself to be different than that. You can take it on as itself, as what it is. And so the, the assumption that now is not safe. That's the logic of restlessness. Now isn't safe. It holds an anxiety, a perturbability, a restlessness, an agitation, which says now isn't safe. So go plan the future, go plot the future, and make it safe. Because now isn't safe. You've got to go somewhere. Go there. Danger is here. Danger is here. So you go nowhere. That's the spiritual logic. Now isn't safe? Let me prove, let, let, prove that to me. The burden of proof is on it, not on me. The mind says it's not safe. Prove it to me. <laughs> where isn't it safe? Show me where it's not safe. If I have a genuine sense of lack of trust, and I bring that into virtually everything I see, why believe it? Prove it to me. Where isn't it safe? Show me where it's not safe. From awareness, awareness wants the proof. It can't find the proof. 
It can only find what it fears might happen if you don't do something. It holds the assumptions, if you don't get moving, this is going to happen. Now is completely safe. Completely safe. So now incites us to action. When we feel anxious about the moment, where is there fear? Where is it, un- where is it unsafe? <coughs> to leave now is to cast ourselves into the condition. There's only two places we can go. We can be now or we can be then. There's only two places. Then holds struggle. Now does not. They hold different strategies, different views, different logic. I, the more you spend in one, the more you can't believe why anyone would spend time in the other. The second quality or uh, assumption from worry is that chaos is unacceptable. I look at the future from the anxiety of the present, and all I see is more chaos. It's unacceptable. So what do I do to master chaos? I assert control. So if there's a strong sense of control, which many of us have, then there's often an accompanying fear of chaos, of confusion. Now, I love little moments during the day when there is chaos. I've learned to come to love that. Like when you lose your keys. <laughs> you know, instead of panicking, which is the restlessness trying to assert the certainty of the next moment out of chaos, just step back a moment and feel what chaos feels like. It is interesting completely out of control. And every cell of the mind's fabric is screaming, yelling at the children, arguing with your spouse, you lost the keys, You'd, it was your fault. Much of our eruption, emotional eruption, comes from the lack of composure within chaos. <laughs> This makes no logic from the sense of self. None. It makes perfect logic, spiritual logic. Perfect spiritual logic. The world is chaotic. We really have very limiting control of anything. And it's always futuristic. It's never now. It's what we're going to do as soon as we get up from the sitting to turn down the heat or turn on the fan. Control is after the fact of the chaos. And so it's compelled by a certain restlessness of spirit. Let me feel it. Let me feel it. Chaos of the world. Here's here's one of the absolute logics of worry, but completely illogical of the of the spiritual dimension. Worry says that unless I worry about something, 
it's not going to turn out okay. On any plane, that makes no sense. <laughs> but we believe it. Emotionally, we believe it. We really believe that we have to hold a kind of tension to events in order for that event to turn out. Let's test that theory. Let's just see if that's true. It doesn't take a lot of courage. It's like, okay, come on now. Here's another one. We believe that in our form of caring, that we really don't care unless we worry about a person. That's an expression of our caring, to worry about someone. And the more our worry, the more we believe we care. It's just the opposite, really. Worry is a self is self-indulgence. And caring requires an open relationship where you actually do care about the person. Often we're just afraid that if we didn't worry, the true fact that we didn't care would come out. See what happens, see what happens when you release the need to have tension in relationship to anyone. You won't lose your heart's connection. You will gain it many times over. You'll feel the power and richness of genuine caring, genuine love of contact not a fear relationship, not a fear relationship. So the themes of worry and restlessness are really the themes of future, the themes of the future. The problem is to overcome. Worry and restlessness, I'm overcoming a problem. It's very, we don't abide within the problem to make it conscious. We want to overcome it even before we get there. There's another illogic. How can we solve a problem unconsciously? We have to abide in the problem to solve it. But we want to solve it in abstraction, as something theoretical. When we abide in a problem, there is no problem. It is only theoretical. A problem is only theoretical. So some of these things I'm just touching upon because I want you to go with them. I want you to take it. What is he talking about? I don't believe that. I'm going to see it for myself. Good. Please do. Watch your problems. Watch your struggles. And then enter the struggle. I mean fully abide within that struggle and see what happens to it. It's only through resistance that a problem can even be defined. And if we fully embody the problem, there is no resistance. Try it. See it. Learn it. Ingest it. Now, we have to also get a sense of the payoff that worry allows us. Because we wouldn't be doing this thing if it were only all this limitation I've talked about. What's the payoff? What is worrying giving us? It's giving us our root issue, that it's all up to us. 
from that point of view, we can play God, can't we? We can be superheroes. And there's nothing more defined than when you're playing superhero. You're never better defined. It gives us definition. It gives us nobility. It gives us meaning. It gives us intention. And it gives us struggle. You can have all of that. You just have to also take pain and suffering. Or we can have trust. Or we can have trust. I'm afraid. Prove it. Prove that there's something to fear here. Where is there anything to fear? I'm not just going to accept that fact just because I've been running on that since time immemorial. I'm not just going to follow that. Where is it? And it dies. It dies a quiet death, not a dramatic one. It whispers itself out of existence. May it do so for all of us. Can we sit for a moment or two? Just this. Not this shouldn't be happening. Or anywhere but here. Just here. Just here. Invest in that not in anywhere but here. Invest in just here. And nothing can hold any traction. So there's a walking period now for uh, until um, 8.45, and then we'll sit again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.